On Halloween night 2002, Chris Jenkins was out celebrating when he got kicked out of a bar on a literal freezing Minnesota night. All of his stuff was still in the bar, and he was forced to walk home. But he never made it home. And to this day, what happened to Chris that night is still a mystery. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hey guys, welcome to episode 6 of Simply Strange. Thanks for joining me today. As you may have noticed, today just so happens to be Halloween. I didn't even have to change the release schedule. It's still a Wednesday, so that's pretty wild. So I wanted to do a Halloween-themed episode today. So we're going to be exploring a case that happened on Halloween. But before we get to that, I, of course, have to do my shameless self-promotion, as is the norm here. So if you've heard a couple episodes of Simply Strange now and you've been enjoying it, you're picking up what I'm putting down, if you want to pop on over to wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave a a nice positive review, that would be very much appreciated. And thank you to everyone who's already done that. It's really cool to see some good reviews starting to trickle in, and I appreciate it. So thanks for that, guys. Not going to bug you with that anymore. Let's go ahead and get into today's story, The Disappearance of Christopher Jenkins. Chris Jenkins grew up in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, a suburb just to the southwest of Minneapolis. He graduated from Eden Prairie High School in 1999. He was an honor student and co-captain of the football team. After graduating high school, he stayed close to home, attending the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, where he continued to excel. He was scheduled to graduate from the Carlson School of Management in May 2003, with a degree in marketing and entrepreneurial management. He maintained a 3.7 GPA, and he was co-captain and goalie of the University of Minnesota's men's lacrosse team, where he had amassed an impressive list of awards, 2002 MVP for the University of Minnesota, academic All-American, and MVP goalie for the upper Midwest, just to name a few. In 2002, his senior year, He lived in a rented house in the Dinkytown neighborhood of Minneapolis with a few roommates. They threw a Halloween party that started around 6, but sometime around 10 o'clock or so, Chris and four other friends, one of whom was his girlfriend, Ashley Rice, decided to head out to the Lone Tree Bar in downtown Minneapolis. And Ashley actually worked at this bar, but she had the night off. They parked just south of the bar, and a little after 10.45, they got inside. 
They were all in costume. Chris was dressed as a Native American, and Ashley was a sexy police officer. And Chris's costume didn't have pockets, so he gave his phone, wallet, and keys to Ashley, who was carrying them in her purse. Now, when they get to the bar, a couple of interesting things happen. There's an off-duty police officer there named Mike Casey, who was working a security detail for the adjacent Hennepin Center for the Arts. Ashley knew Mike pretty well, it would seem. She was actually wearing his police uniform shirt and hat as part of her Halloween costume. So she introduces Chris to Mike, and from there, it's unclear how much interaction the two actually have with each other. But witnesses did later report that Mike was being really flirty with Ashley. We don't have any confirmation of whether or not anything actually came from this. Shortly after midnight, now November 1st, Chris got kicked out of the bar. It's unclear what, if anything, he actually did to get himself kicked out. The story goes that his pants got wet at some point, which security took to mean that he had pissed himself and was drunk and needed to be removed. The more likely possibility, though, is that someone spilled a drink on him. I also have to wonder if Mike has anything to do with it, since he was pretty bent on making moves on Ashley and may have wanted Chris out of the equation. Maybe he said something to security to get them to kick him out. Anyway, that's not important right now. What is important is that it happened. Security removes Chris from the bar, and management stresses that under no circumstances is he allowed to come back in. Problem is, it's Minnesota, so it's cold. It's 20 degrees out, and all Chris is wearing is his Native American costume, consisting of a brown nylon shirt and pants, slip-on shoes, and a headband with a red feather. His jacket is still in the bar, his friend drove them all there, so he doesn't have a ride home, and even if he had driven, his keys, wallet, and cell phone are all still inside in Ashley's purse. So he doesn't seem to have a whole lot of options. Unsure of what to do, he starts to walk north, presumably with the intent to walk home, but he never made it there. After he left the Lone Tree Bar and Grill that night, Chris Jenkins was never seen alive again. Somehow, Chris disappearing from the bar that night didn't raise any red flags for any of his friends, not even Ashley. She hung out at the bar the rest of the night with Mike Casey, who eventually gave her a ride home. It isn't until the next morning that she arrives at his house to bring him back his stuff, and when she gets there, she sees that there's no sign of him. He's not there, his roommates haven't seen him, and his costume is nowhere to be seen either. His friends start to look for him with no luck, and then later in the afternoon, Chris's dad calls his cell. One of his roommates answers and tells him that Chris is missing, that he hadn't come home the previous night and that they couldn't find him. Chris's parents, Steve and Jan Jenkins, had moved from Minnesota to Wisconsin while Chris was in school. And as soon as they got this news, they called the police to try to report him missing, but the Police tell them that a person can't be reported missing until they've been gone for 72 hours. And until they're reported missing, they can't conduct an official search. So basically, the police aren't going to help them for three days. 
And this was not quick enough for Steve and Jan. They wanted to get something done now because this was out of character for Chris. So they hire a private investigator, a detective named Chuck Lesh, and they begin to conduct their own search, enlisting the aid of a small army of Chris's fellow University of Minnesota students to help them find Chris. The initial search doesn't yield any useful information. So they start to interview employees from the Lone Tree Bar, which turned out to be a complete dead end also. No one would even admit to having kicked Chris out of the bar. Apparently, the owner decided that the story was that Chris walked out of the bar on his own, was not kicked out, and just wandered off. And all of the employees were told to stick to this story and not say anything else unless they did so through an attorney representing the bar. And the employees did stick to this. No one recalled kicking Chris out, and they were basically all brick walls. Mike... The off-duty police officer who was hitting on Ashley, who may have wanted Chris out of the picture, was never questioned. The Minneapolis PD did not want to involve Mike because they didn't want this situation to affect his marriage. And Mike never made any attempt to contact the Jenkins family, so his involvement in Chris's removal is purely speculation. But whatever happened to Chris, Mike doesn't come off looking great here. With the search not yielding any information and security at the bar being a dead end, the next step was to check security cameras in the area to see if they were able to shed any light on Chris's whereabouts after he left the bar that night. The Mississippi River runs right through the middle of Minneapolis. Chris lived in Dinkytown on the west side of the river, and the Lone Tree Bar was on the east side, about two miles away. In order for Chris to have gotten home, the most logical route for him to have taken would have been to take Hennepin Avenue across the river, which was the direction he was last seen heading. Chris's parents reached out to the Federal Reserve Bank on Hennepin Avenue, which had a pair of security cameras that overlooked the Hennepin Avenue bridge, and the footage from these tapes was viewed by multiple surveillance officers, both of whom were of the opinion that there was no sign of Chris having ever crossed the bridge that night. So, where did he go? In order to answer this question, the Jenkinses hire canine units to attempt to follow Chris's scent and retrace his steps from after he left the bar that night. And finally, the investigation had some success. Chuck, the investigator, and Sarah, Chris's sister, accompanied the handler as the bloodhound sets out to find Chris's trail. The dog was actually able to pick up Chris's scent from where he left the bar and followed it to this pizza place diagonally across the street called Times Square Pizza and Subs. This is significant because as the investigation continues, Chuck uncovers several witnesses, all with a very disturbing report claiming to have seen a group of about 10 people attacking an unidentified person in front of Times Square Pizza and Subs in the early morning hours after Halloween. The exact time is unconfirmed, and it's impossible to know if the person being attacked was Chris or not, but given the circumstances, it doesn't seem like it would be too much of a stretch. Next door to the pizza place, there was a parking garage, and the dogs were actually able to continue following Chris's scent from the pizza place up into the parking deck, 
where it circled around for a little bit and then went down a ramp to the lower floor. At this point, they got a strong hit on Chris's scent at parking spots 89 and 90. After this, the whole test was run again to confirm the results to be conclusive, and the dog led them on the same route. Lone Tree Bar to Times Square Pizza and Subs to the parking garage, spots 89 and 90. Later on, there are reports that blood drops and a red feather, possibly from Chris's costume, were found in the garage. Maybe this indicates that he was the guy who got beat up outside the pizza place, and he stumbled into the garage after, or possibly was forced into the garage? After they complete the search of the parking garage, Chuck, Sarah, the handler, and the dog went back outside and walked down Hennepin Avenue towards the Mississippi River, letting the dog continue to search, hoping to shed some light on where Chris may have gone next. Chuck doesn't record anything of any real interest being picked up along Hennepin until they reach the bridge. They cross over the bridge, and the dog seemed to pick up something directly below it on the other side. The dog went up to the edge of the water and then down into the water, which seemed to indicate another hit. I'm personally not sure about the validity of this hit, and I'm not sure Chuck was certain of it either. In his write-up, all he really says about it is that the dog's handler felt that it might indicate another hit. It just it seemed a little weaker than the other hits, and it did not seem like they were too confident about it. And then he goes on to say that nothing else of any real interest is found down there. Another thing making me question this hit is the security camera footage. This is on the opposite side of the bridge, and the security camera footage doesn't show Chris ever having crossed the bridge. Someone is wrong. Either the dog is picking up a false scent, or Chris somehow found a way across the bridge without getting caught on camera. So at this point, all we've really got are some weird little tidbits that put together don't really lead to anything concrete. He got kicked out of the bar, but the bar denies it. He may have been attacked. It seems that he went into the parking garage where his trail ends, but then it briefly resurfaces under a bridge along the Mississippi River, a bridge that we have video evidence of him not crossing. And that's it. The police didn't really help. Once the 72 hours passed and they finally acknowledged him as missing, it took them another two days to actually begin the investigation, but that didn't go anywhere either. They pretty quickly grew to believe that Chris either committed suicide or he was so drunk that he fell off a bridge and died, and that was that. Chris's family and friends, though, completely disagreed with this. He said that he was a great student, he was an outstanding athlete, he was happy, responsible, and in no way unstable. He worked really hard, and he was already interviewing for jobs when he graduated. He had plans for the future, and they believed that there was no way he would have just thrown it away, or even let himself get drunk to the point that he would accidentally throw it away. But unfortunately, for a while anyway, that's exactly what this case was ruled, an accidental death. That is, until the next year. Four months after Chris disappeared, on February 27th, 2003, a pedestrian walking across the 3rd Avenue Bridge, just a couple hundred feet south of the Hennepin Avenue Bridge, spotted a body 
floating in the water on the east side of the river. It had gotten caught in the branches of a large tree where it came to a stop. The person was floating on their back with their arms crossed and wearing a Native American costume. It was the body of Chris Jenkins. By the next day, there had been communication between the police and the media, and on the 28th, an article was published stating that no evidence of foul play was found, and it was believed that Chris's death was either suicide or an accident. Problem is that there was definitely evidence suggesting foul play. A lot of it. Again, the first major point is the security cameras. The cameras had a clear view of the bridge and were looked over by multiple people, all of whom cleared it. Based on where his body was found, if he fell, then the most likely point of entry would have been the bridge. But the problem with that is, first off, the railings on this bridge are shoulder high. It would be borderline impossible for anyone to fall off, regardless of whether they were intoxicated or not. And then based on the footage that we have, we have absolutely no evidence of him having crossed the bridge, we have no evidence of him being thrown off the bridge, nothing weird happened on the bridge. And then his autopsy and the way his body was positioned reveal even more information that should have cast a lot of doubt on the idea that this was an accident. Drowning victims are typically pretty easy to identify. They usually attempt to swim causing them to be found face down with their arms at their sides. Chris was found floating face up with his arms crossed and his hands clenched. In one hand, he actually had a bunch of his hair. It's hard to say exactly what this was doing here. I've heard theories that maybe someone was trying to hold Chris's head under the water and he was struggling, trying to grasp at this person's hand who was on the back of his head and he ripped some of his own hair out. But I've also heard that it's possible that as he was decomposing, hair was just falling out and drifted into his hand. If I'm being completely honest, neither of those stories seem super likely to me, but the hair is there one way or another. Another possibility is that he was posed with his arms crossed and someone put the hair in his hand. Additionally, the struggle to swim will typically leave the victim with disheveled clothes, and a lot of times they lose their shoes. Chris's shirt was still neatly tucked into his drawstring pants on his Native American outfit, and he was wearing slip-on moccasins, both of which were still on his feet. Something that, to me, seems like it would be pretty close to impossible if you had fallen off of a bridge. From that height, hitting the water could even have broken bones, but his body showed no signs of having sustained any physical injuries. No broken bones, no bruises, no wounds, nothing. And in regards to it possibly being suicide, again, everyone who knew Chris says he had it together. He was happy, he was successful, he had a future. Obviously, there's no way to know exactly what's going on inside someone's head, but from the outside looking in, he definitely seemed like he was pretty far from being at risk for suicide. And then that accompanied with the facts that he wasn't seen on the bridge, his shirt was tucked in and his shoes were on, he was in a position that was not consistent with drowning. 
All these things make me feel like suicide just isn't a viable explanation here, and accidentally falling seems unlikely too. And the autopsy reveals even more details supporting that something else happened. There is evidence of GHB in his system, which we'll talk about later, and when he was recovered, his blood alcohol level was determined to be around 0.12, which would be pretty intoxicated. It's above the legal driving limit, but it's not really fall off a bridge drunk either. But here's the thing. As a body decomposes, it naturally produces alcohol. According to forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Baden, a significant amount of the alcohol found in his body would have been naturally occurring, somewhere between half of it and all of it. So, at worst, when Chris died, he had a .06 BAC, and at best, he could have been completely sober, which we will also talk about more later. Steve and Jan Jenkins, along with their private investigator, Chuck Lesh, are convinced that there was foul play. And the more I learn about this case, the more convinced I am that that is the case. Here's something interesting. The woman who spotted Chris's body in the water actually spotted it closer to the shoreline on the east side of the Mississippi River, which is the opposite side from where Chris was. But by the time it was retrieved, it had floated more towards the middle of the river where it eventually got caught on a tree near the Horseshoe Dam. So his body was in motion the day it was discovered, which begs the question, where was it for the four months prior to this, and how did it just suddenly appear in the river in the middle of the day? Perhaps his body was caught underwater somewhere, and somehow it got knocked loose the day that it was discovered, allowing it to float to the surface? If that's the case, then it would put Chris's entry point into the water somewhere on the east side of the river or possibly around Nicolette Island, which is a small island in the middle of the Mississippi River that Hennepin Avenue Bridge leads to and through before it hits the other side of the river. This is where the bloodhound possibly caught a trace of Chris's scent earlier in the investigation on the other side of the Hennepin Avenue Bridge. So, if Chris was murdered, who did it? And why did they do it? And how did he end up in the river? There are... Quite a few theories out there. It could have been completely random, really bad luck. There's some theories that he was drugged. There's a theory involving a supposed organized crime ring called the Smiley Face Killers. Some people think he pissed off the wrong guy in the bar. We know he never crossed the Hennepin Avenue Bridge on foot, but evidence suggests that his body likely entered the water somewhere in that area. Based on this, the obvious assumption to me is to say that someone drove him there. Perhaps he hitched a ride with the wrong person, trying to get home. They drove him towards home, but suffocated him somewhere along the way, and dumped his body in the river on the other side of the bridge. Maybe on Nicolette Island, out of sight of the security cameras. His parents have pointed to the fact that his body appeared to not have suffered any physical damage. No scratches, no broken bones, no bruises, nothing that would indicate a struggle. And this is interesting because... Chris was a lacrosse goalie. He was constantly getting pelted with lacrosse balls, which left him pretty consistently bruised. But when his body was found, it had no bruises, despite him having had two games and a practice in the days before his disappearance. His parents think that this means he was not killed on Halloween night, 
that he was kept alive at least long enough for those bruises to heal. But I just don't know about that. It's honestly really tough for me to figure out what exactly I think about the time of his death because I've seen interesting evidence supporting both possibilities. His blood alcohol level suggested that he wasn't very intoxicated, maybe even sober at the time of his death. The odds of that being the case on Halloween night seems pretty slim given that he was partying from 6pm to midnight. This makes it seem like he was kept alive at least long enough to sober up some. But at the same time, I feel like if he was being held hostage before he was killed, he probably would be inflicting damage to his body trying to get away. Unless maybe he was drugged, which is another thing that's really hard to figure out. I've got two sources I've been going over, trying to get to the bottom of it because they both tell a different story. What we know for sure is that Chris was found with 57 micrograms per milliliter of GHB in his system. GHB, also known as the date rape drug, can leave you completely debilitated and can cause memory loss. But here's the problem with that. GHB is produced naturally in small quantities by the body. And as a body decomposes, these levels can become slightly exaggerated. The medical examiner wrote off the GHB in Chris's body as having been naturally produced and then more being produced as a product of decomposition, saying that these levels were nothing out of the ordinary. And then there's also a show called Breaking a Homicide that does an episode on Chris's case, and in it, they consult forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril Wecht, who echoes this sentiment, saying that these levels of GHB do not raise, in his opinion, any red flags. So based on these, the idea of him being abducted and drugged seems busted, right? Well, no, it's not that easy. According to other sources, specifically a book called Case Studies in Drowning Forensics by Kevin Gannon and Dr. Lee Gilbertson, yes, GHB does exist in the body naturally, and yes, it can increase as a body decomposes, but in much smaller amounts. According to them, what we should have expected to see naturally occurring in Chris's body when he was found was somewhere in the ballpark of, if we're being generous, 10 micrograms per milliliter. Chris had 57, which means, assuming that 10 would be what we would expect to see naturally produced, at the time of Chris's death, he would have had 47 micrograms per milliliter in his body, and that's enough to put someone in a light sleep. And what makes this even more concerning is that GHB has a really short half-life, meaning that as little as 45 minutes earlier, he could have had twice as much in his system as what he was found with, making him an extremely easy target. And look, I'm just a dude. I don't know anything about this stuff. I'm just digging through the work of people who are way smarter than me and trying to figure out what happened. To me, I don't trust the official story from early on. It was rushed. The investigation was non-existent. I find myself lumping the medical examiner's dismissal of the GHB into the he drowned and we don't care mindset that the police had. There's a lot of weird stuff in his autopsy that went unquestioned. Dr. Wecht, I trust 
a little more, but at the same time, there's not much else attached to Dr. Wecht involving the case, and I wonder how much preparation he did for this interview. Maybe he just got it wrong. But then these guys who wrote case studies in drowning forensics go really deep. They give tons of supporting evidence and data backing their claims. And on this, I think I trust them more. I think that he had a significant amount of GHB in him when he died. So with that in consideration, accompanied with the fact that he wasn't really that intoxicated and maybe even sober when he died, I would say he was probably alive for at least a couple hours after he left the bar that night. Enough time for him to sober up and succumb to the effects of the GHB. But there's really no evidence of it having been any longer than that. It would take days for the bruises to heal, and I just don't think that he was alive that long. There's nothing to support that. I think that the more likely possibility is it just had something to do with his body being submerged in water for four months. So taking all of this into consideration, I am pretty comfortable saying that I believe that this was homicide. On the surface, this case seems like it could easily be a case of some college kid who drank too much falling into a river. A lot of people online who likely have only skimmed the Cliff Notes version of this case think that. The police thought that it's not unreasonable. But when you start to go deeper, the facts just don't seem to support that. In fact, in 2006, the Minneapolis PD reopened the case, publicly apologizing to the Jenkins family and reclassifying Chris's death as a homicide. As far as who did it, one of the more popular theories is that Chris Jenkins was the victim of a serial killer, or a group of killers, known as the Smiley Face Gang. Without getting too deep into it, the abridged version of this is that these two retired New York City detectives noticed similarities between drowning victims in New York and the Midwest in the late 90s and early 2000s. The victims were all white, college-aged males who had been out drinking and then turned up dead in bodies of water. According to the theory, all of these men were found near graffiti of a smiley face. So the theory is that these men were all killed by the same person or group of people and that the smiley face is their tag. There does seem to be some merit to the idea that there was someone going around targeting young intoxicated men at that time as two other males were found drowned in Minnesota and Wisconsin right around the same time. But there is no evidence of the deaths being connected. And there's no information on whether a smiley face was found in the area where Chris was found. And even if there was, people drown all the time. And I feel like smiley faces are pretty common to see tagged. I know I've seen them around plenty of times. I don't think that every time a drowning victim is found near a smiley face that it necessarily means that that person was killed by some organized crime group. I kind of think this theory is grasping its straws a little bit, trying to connect things that aren't connected. If more evidence surfaced in support of it, I'd entertain it, but that hasn't happened. Back to the GHB theory. If Chris was drugged, it seems most likely that he was drugged shortly before he left the bar that night, and there are some interesting details involving the Lone Tree Bar that could shed some light on things. The TV show Breaking Homicide that I mentioned earlier on their episode breaking down this case, brought forth an anonymous source who said that he had a scary experience at the Lone Tree Bar just a few months before Chris's disappearance. 
He was at the bar having a drink, and he noticed his drink had a strange metallic taste to it. He started feeling sick, so he walked outside, and as he was walking, the bouncers at the bar grabbed him and took him towards a parked vehicle, which he says they tried to force him into. Fortunately, he was able to grab his phone and hit redial, which connected him with his buddy who was still in the bar, who came to his rescue and he got away. That metallic taste is consistent with GHB. And this experience seems eerily familiar to what seems to have happened to Chris, taking into consideration that his scent trail ended in the parking garage right across the street from the bar. So was this a recurring thing at the Lone Tree Bar? And who would be spiking people's drinks? There aren't really a lot of suspects who have been named in this case, but there is one guy who seems like a really strong possibility, but has never been charged. Jeremy Lynn Alford. In 2005, Jeremy Alford and his brother Lewis were arrested for the murder of their roommate and landlord. They had been living with this guy, but they were stealing from him and they weren't paying rent, so he was about to evict them. Before he could do that, Jeremy and Lewis brutally murdered him. Brutally. They stabbed him up to 20 times with a barbecue fork and knife. And he also suffered blunt force trauma to the head from a pipe and also a hammer. After they killed him, they lit his mobile home on fire with his body in it and drove his van into a river. The next day, they were arrested after having fled to Iowa. And apparently prior to this, Jeremy Alford frequented the Lone Tree Bar. And after his arrest, he actually admitted to having killed, quote, some kid in an Indian costume. He even divulged some information to the police about the case that was not public knowledge. But for some reason, I guess the police didn't find this convincing enough, or maybe they found something that isn't public knowledge, but he was never convicted. But here's the thing. I'm going to go back to that Breaking Homicide show, because they did a good job with this case, and there's a lot of interesting stuff that they brought forward. I definitely recommend watching it if you're interested in the Chris Jenkins case. I think the most fascinating thing that they uncovered involves Jeremy Alford. They actually kind of catfished him. They set up this fake email address posing as a female journalist, and they asked him if he had anything to do with Chris Jenkins. He actually responded. He said, I don't want to talk about any crime that I haven't been charged with and or convicted of. I mean, that sounds like a yes, right? If he had nothing to do with it, would he not have just said, no, I had nothing to do with it? Sounds to me like he had something to do with it. I think it's highly plausible that Jeremy Alford was at the bar that night. He and Chris had some sort of altercation. We already know Jeremy is fully capable of killing. So if something happens with him and Chris, and Jeremy decides then and there, he's going to kill Chris. In fact, we even have some eyewitness accounts of Chris having gotten involved in an altercation with someone that night. There's reports that Chris broke up a fight between a guy who was at the Lone Tree Bar with his girlfriend and some sketchy guy who showed up and started hitting on the other guy's girlfriend. Reportedly, 
These two were about to get into it, and Chris interfered to try to keep the peace. Nothing crazy happened. It never got physical. He just got between them and kept them from going at each other. But maybe this creepy guy was Jeremy Alford, and he didn't like that. So here's what I think happened. He rubbed someone the wrong way, very possibly Jeremy Alford. This person decides that they're going to kill Chris. They slip some drugs into his drink. And not too long after that, he gets kicked out. He was probably already feeling woozy, which would explain the perceived negligence of security in not letting him go back in to get his stuff. He probably didn't really have his wits about him enough to plead his case. So he just wandered off. From there, based off of the bloodhounds, we know that he went to New York Times Pizza and Subs. Maybe he was the victim of that group of people who ganged up on someone? That could possibly have been Jeremy Alford's posse, or maybe he just ran into Jeremy Alford while I was there, and he coaxed him into the parking garage and into his car. It probably would have been pretty easy to do if he was under the influence of GHB like I think he was. So at this point, Chris's scent disappears in the garage. I think it's pretty safe to say that that's because he got in a car. And it only takes about 10 minutes to an hour for GHB to set in. So by this point, Chris was probably completely helpless. And sometime over the next couple hours, this person killed him. Based on his autopsy, most likely by suffocating him. And then disposed of his body in the Mississippi River. Based off of the possible hit on his scent that the bloodhound found, as well as the location that his body was eventually found, it seems most likely that he was dumped in the water from off of Nicolette Island. From there, his body must have gotten hung up on something underwater, where it remained for four months before somehow being broken loose and resurfacing a couple hundred feet downriver, where it was spotted and eventually recovered. With the information that we have, I really think that this is the most likely theory. But the fact of the matter is that no one has come forward, and we don't really have any other concrete evidence of what happened that night, so we have no way of knowing. So if you do have any information relating to the death of Chris Jenkins, I urge you to call the Minneapolis Police Department at 612-692-8477. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. I thought this was a really interesting case. There are so many pieces of information around this. And as soon as you start to lean one way, something else turns up that makes you think that something else happened. When I started working on this episode, I really thought it was just an accident. I figured it's a big river. There's plenty of places to fall in beyond just the Hennepin Avenue bridge. So surely, that's what happened. But the more I learned about the case, the autopsy, the details surrounding the bar, Jeremy Alford, Chris's scent trail, it just got to the point where it was really hard for me to see this as anything other than a homicide. Maybe I'm completely wrong. I'd love to know what you guys think happened to Chris. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff at Simply Strange Podcast. So pop in if you feel like I missed something or if you have your own theories. 
And if you enjoyed this episode and haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. That's it. That's all I got. Everyone, I hope you all have an absolutely delightful rest of the day and a happy Halloween.